You know that our God is a comforting God. We serve a comforting God. Well, we're told in Romans 15, 5, now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. We are to be like our master. He was encouraging, he was comforting, and we are to encourage others. He's called the God of patience and consolation. God is very much pro-encouragement. Encouragement comes from God. Discouragement comes from the wicked one. Let's determine we are going to be encouragers. What does that take? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, last time we took a look at uh, faith that's real. Remember that? And today, we're going to be talking about an encouraging faith. An encouraging faith. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We've been in a series here. We've been studying it verse by verse. And last time we saw that the high-ranking religious officials known as the Sanhedrin, the upper-ranking muckety-mucks of the spiritual realm at that time, had called uh, Peter and John in on the carpet for preaching the gospel. And they rebuked them. They threatened them. They tried to intimidate them. And they warned them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the disciples had to be honest. And in so many words, they said, we were told by our master to preach the gospel into all the world. And so we've got to keep it up. Well, as they were let go, they gravitated back to their own kind, didn't they? We talked about that. There was that homing device and it brought them to that upper room. And there they met with the disciples, told them what happened. And they dropped to their knees spontaneously and erupted into a prayer meeting. And they poured out their heart to God, asking for help and boldness. God answered with an earthquake. That was his amen. And the building shook. And we pick it up there in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 32. It says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We find here not only a faith that's real, but we find here a very, very encouraging faith. And we'll be talking about that, but let's pray first, shall we? Father, we come before Thee at this time, and we ask You to bless our moments here in Your Word. We pray that You would help us to listen and glean truth that would encourage us and help us to be an encouragement. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a writer by the name of William Ward. He said this. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. (laughs) Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, 
and I will not forget you. Encouragement, what a powerful thing that is. And it reads like who's who as we look at, at, at people throughout history who just had a shot in the arm from a word of encouragement and made all the difference in their world. You know, I find Thomas Edison a very interesting individual. He, he invented the phonograph. He invented the uh, kinetoscope. He invented the mimeograph and the motion picture camera and uh, the light bulb and a host of other things. But when he was in grade school, his teacher finally gave up on him, so frustrated at trying to teach him that she sent him home and said in so many words, this boy is hopeless. He, he, is, he is mentally challenged and he will never amount to anything. Well, his mother didn't believe any of that. She took little Thomas aside and she said, no, you're special. And uh, you can learn. And she taught him. He was homeschooled. And, of course, he grew up and uh, by the time he was done invented, had 1,093 patents. If you can imagine that. But all he needed was that word of encouragement. Harlan Sanders was kind of a washout his entire life. He just bounced from job to job to job and finally found himself at retirement age, 65, having really amounted to nothing in life. But there was somebody who kept raving about his fried chicken. They said, this is finger-licking good and encouraged him to start a franchise with it. And, of course, Harlan Sanders became the famous Colonel Sanders and his restaurants dot the land to this day because of the encouragement of just one person. Encouragement is a powerful, powerful thing, folks, especially spiritual encouragement, spiritual encouragement. Back in the days of, of uh, the evangelization of Africa, the 1700s primarily and the 1800s, uh, there were Africans getting converted by the droves, and they were very devout people and, and very serious about doing their devotions and having their time with God every morning. And so they all had their little uh, secret spot, their little quiet place that they went to out in the brush in the bush there and, and in the jungle. And, and, and they actually each left a path. If you can imagine this growing, uh, where the grass was growing, they matted it down where they went out to their place to pray and get alone with God. And if there was an African who was backsliding, it became very apparent. And they had a little saying. They said, the grass groweth yonder on your path, brother. In other words, you haven't been with the Lord lately. And it was done nicely, but it was a provoking to good works. It was a word of encouragement. Well, in the first century, they had a very, very, very encouraging faith. And we read about it here at the last part of Acts chapter 4. And as we take a look at it, we see several things here. First of what I call the sold-out pioneers. The sold-out pioneers. These were pioneers in the sense that Christianity was in a fledgling, embryonic kind of a stage. And it was just kind of taking off. And these folks were spiritual sodbusters. They, they were blazing trails. You know, in the Red River Valley, there were some folks that came here from Norway and Sweden and, and uh, Germany and Ireland and other places like that. And it didn't look anything like it looks today. It was just prairie grass. And they were the ones who had to turn that sod over and, and start farming and, and uh, clear those trees out. And we owe a lot to them. You know, we have it made today, but uh, they actually paid a price coming here and living in sod huts. And, and some of them got here in the late fall and they actually turned their wagons over and lived in them all winter long. Could you imagine that today? We live in a 1912 house and we think the barn is even older. And in our house, we have a picture of the barn dating back probably to the late 1800s. 
Now, I've looked at this picture many times because it's these pioneers. It's these, these men with long beards and strange-looking hats and bib overalls and, and, and little girls in prairie dresses. And it's a very old picture. And I thought of the price they paid, you know, Slim and Lars and Gunder and whatever their names were, coming to this area and, and starting what they started here. Well, for Christianity, there were some folks, and they were pioneers, and they were sold out, and, and they had the, the great commission before them and the task of starting New Testament churches all over the then known world. And we find out in verse number 32, it says of them, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. This thing just oozes unity to me. They were in this thing together here, and it was true unity. Now, let me just say this about unity and true unity, because the devil is a a forger, he is a fake, he is an imposter, and he causes a lot of confusion with this subject of unity today. How many of you have heard the expression ecumenicism or the ecumenical movement? Some of you have, perhaps some of you haven't, but it's, it's a movement that teaches that all religions and all denominations and all, all sects should join hands and come together regardless of what they believe and just lock arms and get along. So in other words, if there are religious groups out there and they don't believe in the deity of Christ that he was God in the flesh. If there are groups out there and they don't believe in the Trinity or they don't believe in the uh, salvation by grace or uh, they teach that baptism saves you, water washes sin away or they practice an unscriptural type of baptism. They don't believe in eternal security. Uh, They believe in things like sinless perfection. And we could go on and on and on. But you have a number of groups out there and they're not just unscriptural, they are anti-scriptural. They go contrary to what the Word of God has to say. And yet, are we supposed to yoke up with them? Well, let me give you a couple of verses here. Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, there's some food for thought. Can they? It's, It's a question that's not answered, but it's implied. No, they can't. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. We read in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? So it's very clear from the Bible that the modern day ecumenical movement is not scriptural. We are not to be yoking up together with those who deny this book. It causes confusion. And by the way, compromise always causes confusion. But in the last days, it was predicted in the Bible that this thing was going to happen and finally unite into what's going to be a one-world church. And the book of Revelation chapter 17 describes it as a harlot, if you can imagine, and God actually judges it. He wipes it out, this one-world religious system. But may I say to you here in Acts chapter 4, we have true ecumenicism, if you will, or really what God had in mind with ecumenicism, unity within a local church. I'll say it again. Unity within a local church. And it's the kind of unity that our Lord Jesus Christ prayed for. In John chapter 17, 11, before going to the cross, he prayed to his Father. He said, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, his disciples. And I come to thee, Holy Father, Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Notice that they may be one 
that they may be one as we are. Here's the Lord praying for his church, the church he had started while he walked this earth. He goes on in that same chapter. He says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. He says it again, that they may be one, that they may be on the same page. In verse 22, he says that they may be one even as we are one. And so we find here this true unity. And in verse 32 again, it says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. You say, Pastor, you know what this sounds like? It sounds like communism. Communism! Well, it's far from it. Far, far from it. You know, the basic philosophy of communism is noble on the surface, that we homogenize everybody and and, uh, we're fair all the way across the board. But in truth, it's not fair. Those who work hard are penalized. Those who are lazy are rewarded. It's not fair. But beyond that, it even breaks down because of the selfishness of the human heart. And you add to that the fact that some power-hungry tyrant always wields for control there, and and this isn't even close to communism. What we see here is, is an unbridled, an intoxicating love, if you will. What we see here is sharing. What we see here is something that is totally voluntary. Nobody is making them do this. They want to do this. There's no law passed that says they have to do this, and it's really a miracle of grace. You find people from all walks of life here in in a spontaneous expression of love, selling their things and sharing their things. You know what? We really need to recapture that spirit, don't we? That spirit that they had in the first century there, it, it, it was rare, really rare. Fact is, it was going to deteriorate very quickly because of sin and human nature it only existed for a very short time the very next chapter you're going to find some fussing going around and some pride and some preeminence you're going to find in the following chapter some murmuring taking place and that's just human nature sadly that's what happens things go downhill if we don't work to bring them up and whoever said that man is basically good has never read the bible never again do you find this kind of unity in the New Testament church. But in Acts chapter 4, there's nothing like it. In the annals of time, there's never been anything like it. This persecution drove them together, drove them to their knees, and the grace and the power of God flowed through them. And no foe could fright them, no fear could alarm them. They were just busy loving and sharing and giving out the gospel. We find here these sold-out pioneers Secondly, we find this subsequent power. As a result of this spirit they had, there was a power that went with it. In verse 33, it says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power and great grace. You know that one of the greatest hallmarks of a great church is power. It's power. This last week I woke up and we keep our house a little bit cool, but it seemed even cool for us. And so I went downstairs, I looked at the thermostat and it was 62, and I thought, I wonder what's going on. The blower was still going, but the fire was out. And you HVAC guys who sit here, you, you've been on those service calls. The blower is still going, but the fire is out. There are some churches like that, aren't there? 
There are some churches out there, and boy, they have services, and uh, they have ministries, and they have preaching, and they have programs. But, but great churches don't operate on human wit and human wisdom and human ingenuity. They operate on a supernatural power. And there ought to be something about the Fargo Baptist Church that, that goes beyond its programs and goes beyond its organization. There ought to be a, a power here. There ought to be a spirit here. And honestly, when people come to this place and the Word of God is preached, it should make them mad, sad, or glad. Hopefully glad, but God's Word ought to be empowered. And there ought to be a power in a genuine New Testament church. I'm thinking of a, of a gal who's married to a preacher now years ago uh, before they went and started a church in the cities. Uh, she was lost, and she used to come here, and she came with another friend of hers, and she said that they would actually go to another church, and in that church, they felt good. It, it was kind of a, a fun kind of a thing, but they came here regardless right after that other service, and they said they came here because when they left here, they said, God is here. God is here. And there ought to be something here that makes people say, God is here. In this case, those gals were lost. They weren't born again. And uh, they were uncomfortable about their sin. But you know, it's possible to have a great organization and great mechanics and great planning and great talent. And by the way, we have a lot of talented people here. We have a great staff here. But you can have all of those things and be lacking power. And I think the great danger of Fargo Baptist Church after 30 plus years is we have an incredible amount of, of talent. We have the knowledge. We know what to do, but we can forget to depend on God. God forbid. God forbid. You know, we want unsaved folks to walk in this place. And when the service is over, for them to have been dealt with by God, to know if they're lost, something is missing, to know if they're lost, that everything's not okay with God, that they are a sinner and they need a Savior. In Acts 2.37, the Bible says, Now when they heard this, the gospel, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? God dealt with them. God dealt with them. Let me just say, that requires a Spirit-filled church. It requires Spirit-filled preaching. It requires Spirit-filled people people. We find this admonition in Ephesians 5.18. It says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In the Greek, this is an imperative. This isn't a suggestion. Oh, you know, if it's convenient, be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And it's also in the present tense, meaning continue to be filled with the Spirit. We can't live in the glory days, folks. Uh, we can't revel in the past in times when we've had the Spirit of God. It's an imperative. It is in the present. We are to be filled with the Spirit. You know, it's odd that in one day, the day of Pentecost, you've got 120 people going out to preach to thousands and 3,000 get saved. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to have 3,000 Christians lead 120 to Christ. What is the difference between the first century and the 21st century? Well, let me just say, when a a true New Testament church is filled with the Spirit of God and has the power of God upon it. It will touch the area. It will touch the region. It will touch the world. God will use it in a great way. But let me just say this. We need to be in this thing together. You'll notice in verse number 33, 
It says, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. What's that mean? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, it it may mean that this power was an unmerited favor that God had given to them so that they could reach the world. No question about that. But when it says great grace was upon them all, it may be talking about how they were gracious. They showed and they lived grace. They were forgiving. They were kind. They were forbearing. They were benevolent. They were long-suffering. They were patient. They were people of grace. They let it ride. They let it go. They didn't didn't fight over piddly things. They didn't let little things bother them. They showed great grace. Grace grace was upon them all. How many of you have been cut off in traffic and practically thrown a duck fit or even caught up to the person who did it? You know, seriously? Somebody cost you maybe less than five seconds in your life, and you have over 85 or 86,000 seconds every week, but somebody cuts you off in traffic, so you're all hot and bothered and upset and fuming because you lost a few seconds that you'll probably waste later. You know, I've been driving for over 40 years. You think I've made a few mistakes in that time? Do you think you've made a few mistakes as you drive? Certainly. What a hypocrite we would be to get on somebody else's case when we've blown it in traffic as well. Do we show great grace in the little things or do we get in the flesh? Let's show grace. By the way, when I was a kid growing up, my folks had this little statue on the dash of the car, a little magnetic thing. How many remember those? And, and it was a saint. I've often thought how we need to take the saint off the dash and put him behind the steering wheel, amen, and start driving like saints, shall we? You know, we could talk about a number of examples here. Do we show grace? Honestly, are we people of grace? The Bible tells us at the end of verse 33 that great grace was upon them all. They were gracious. No wonder. No wonder they had power. You know, I've said this many times. You can't change people. You can only change the way you react to people. You can only change the way you react to people. You can show grace. We find this verse in Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Love covereth the multitude of sin, the New Testament says. So if you're walking around with a bad spirit, with a bad attitude, with a critical spirit, with a, I call it the stink eye, That FBI spirit. Who's going to get me upset here? You have a deficit in the love department. You have a deficit in the grace department. And it's time to repent. Isn't that an easy solution? You just need to repent. Now, for the most part, I thank God that the people of Fargo Baptist Church are people of grace. And uh, I mean that. To many of you, keep it up. But to to some, it's time to show some grace. Okay, it's time to get in sync. I read in verse number 33, great grace was upon them, what? All. See the next word? All. They were all in sync. What a difference that made. Let's get everybody in sync. May all of our members love like Jesus Christ loved. May all of our members show grace like Jesus Christ showed grace. 
Let us be a church like that first century church that is just bubbling over with, with love one for another. There was a little boy who attended a certain church and his family moved to the other side of town. But he kept showing up at that old church. His folks didn't bring him. He walked. And he passed church after church after church, getting to that one. And finally, one Sunday morning, the pastor asked him, there's other churches closer to you. Why do you come here? He said, because a little fella is loved here. He knew it. A little fella gets loved here. Let's love on people. And let them feel that love when they come to this place. By the way, if there's a visitor sitting in your seat, quote-unquote, don't glare at them. God help us. (laughs) Really? Let's be people of grace, shall we? We see here the sold-out pioneers. We see the subsequent power. Thirdly, we see the sacrificial philanthropy. The sacrificial philanthropy. It, It involves a fella that we're going to be introduced to in a second. But in verse number 34... It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, there was a great need at Jerusalem at that time. You need to understand the setting here. There were people getting saved. And this was a Jewish climate. This was a Jewish culture, orthodox one. And to become one of those born-again Christians, to become a follower of that Jesus of Nazareth sect, man, you're going to take it on the chin. You might lose your job, which means you might lose your house. You might lose your friends. And so it was a state of emergency here, really, in a sense. And there were people selling their houses selling their lands, voluntarily bringing the funds from that and laying at the feet of the apostles and saying, help the other folks here. I don't care who gets it. I don't, know. I don't want to know who gets it. I don't want them to know I gave it. Just, just get the job done here. You know, it's been said that if we had a state of emergency in this country and the highway system shut down, that the grocery shelves would be stripped bare in about three hours. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You're going to all run out for groceries after the message. But, but honestly, if you think about it, who knows what's coming? Some worldwide financial collapse? We don't know. But how would we react if it happened? They say, well, I'd, I'd open my cupboards to everybody. I'd share what I've got now. Would we? The Bible says in Galatians 6-2, to bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This was a time of persecution in the first century. The goods of the people were being confiscated. It's hard for us to relate because we don't have anything close to that. In fact, there's a lot of verses in the New Testament. We read them and it's hard for us to relate to it. We read in James 2.15 that if a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, What doth it profit? You know, we can't understand that, having bare cupboards, having empty gas tanks, and and, and actually being hungry. But they were in the first century, and they had to write verses like this to help one another out, to love on one another. May Fargo Baptist Church be known for its love one toward another. Not its pettiness, but its love. And may we look for opportunities to love on people, to be a blessing, to be helpful in some way. You know, that's what Job did. 
I was reading Job recently, and, and Job said, if I saw this need, I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. And, uh, and then I went looking for needs, actually looking for somebody who might need help. You say, but if I uh, don't have much, and I give away what I have, well, there won't be enough for me. Well, there are some Bible principles that deal with that. In Luke 6, Christ said, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. You know, what you sow actually multiplies. It actually grows. That's what Christ is saying. If you give, you'll get it back. You'll get more back. And what you give, what you actually sow multiplies. What we keep in the barn never multiplies. Just a simple rule of physics. God does not give us resources in order to hoard them. I uh, heard of a uh, Christian fella. He was just starting out in business. And he promised God that he would always give God 51% of everything he made. 51%. Why such an odd fraction? Well, he said, I, I want God to be the senior partner in my business. God bless the man. It was nothing for him to give 51%. You know, when we die one day, all we're going to hold in our cold, dead hands are those things that we gave away. If you think about it, those things that we sent on ahead, those rewards that lay up yonder for us in heaven. You say, but I'm, I'm living hand to mouth, Pastor. I, I don't have any money to give away. Well, you can give away something that's not of a monetary value. You can give away some time. You can give away some talent. You can give away some love. Uh, you can help out a neighbor. You can help out a friend. You can uh, give somebody some wisdom, some counsel. There are a lot of different ways that you can give of yourself. But that's all I'm saying about there, there, there needs to be this sacrificial philanthropy. And on that note, we see finally here in our passage what I call the supportive patron. And I'm going to introduce you today to somebody called Barnabas, the cheerleader. In verse number 36, it says, And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, back in the late 80s, uh, we had a ministry we started, and we didn't have a name for it, but it, inv- it involved discipleship, but more than discipleship. It, it involved befriending and mentoring and, and being a blessing to somebody who was either new in the Lord or, or not as strong in the Lord. We called it the Barnabas Ministry. It kind of stuck for a while. It's still an unofficial uh, title we use around here. But it was named after Barnabas. Now, Barnabas wasn't his name. You find here in verse 36, Joses was his official name. But Barnabas was a nickname, a nickname. By the way, I heard about a guy, and everybody called him Tex, Tex. And one day, somebody said, what part of Texas are you from, Tex? He goes, well, I'm not even from Texas. He goes, where are you from? He said, I'm from Louisiana. He, he said, well, why do they call you Tex? He said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them calling me Louise. And um, so anyway, there's, there's, there's names, there's nicknames. And in the Bible, names mean something. You know, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, meaning a prince with God. Christ changed Simon or Cephas' name 
to Peter, meaning a small stone. Well, Barnabas means son of consolation. It's told us right there in verse number 36. The word consolation there in the Greek means comfort. He was the son of comfort. Um, it means solace. He, he comforted people. He consoled people. He exhorted people. Now, we find from verse number 36, it tells us here that Barnabas was a Levite. There were 12 tribes. Levi was the one who tended to the temple and the altar and so on. And this particular Levite, Barnabas, was from Cyprus, from the island of Cyprus. If you look behind me there, you see Cyprus to the north and west of Jerusalem way up there, and it's an island. And Barnabas apparently owned some land on the island of Cyprus. I'd like to own some land there today. And the Levites actually were not allowed by Levitical code, by Mosaic code, to own land. You remember that. So what's the deal? Well, it, it, it only applied to land in Israel. I don't know how Barnabas came by this land, maybe inherited it through somebody, but he had uh, some wealth there, and he uh, lived in Cyprus, but he also had some relatives in Israel. Uh, we'll see later that he had a sister, uh, a, a, a nephew, uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, these people lived in Israel there, and Barnabas somehow came to Christ. We don't know how. But he heard about the plight of these poor people, these persecuted people there in the church there at Jerusalem, and he was stirred by love. His heart was moved within him. And by the way, that is the best motivation. That is the best incentive. Uh, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. And we can talk about duty. We can throw a guilt trip on people. uh, We can pay people. We can do whatever we can to get people to do what they do. But love is still the strongest motivator. And, and Barnabas was motivated by love. And he lived by faith. And he sold everything that he had back in Cyprus. And he laid it at the apostles' feet and said, get the gospel out. Help the people who are getting saved. What an encouragement Barnabas had to be. What an encouragement he was. He was a supportive patron. Do you know of anyone? And it's like they just have the gift of encouragement. Or you may know know of someone who thinks they have the gift of discouragement. You know, they darken a room every time they walk in, and and, uh, then they lighten it when they leave, and they leave you depressed. You need them like a drowning man needs a drink of water, don't you? Who needs a discourager? We need encouraging Christians. And we find in verse 36, he's called the son of consolation. The son of consolation. In the Greek, that's an interesting word. It actually is the same root word for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. He is, he is one who came alongside of people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The comforter, Christ called him. And the Holy Spirit comes along people and he comforts them. And Barnabas is called the son of consolation. He was an encouraging fella. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians one three, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. You know that our God is a comforting God. We serve a comforting God. Well, we're told in Romans fifteen five, now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. We are to be like our Master. He was encouraging, he was comforting, 
and we are to encourage others. He's called the God of patience and consolation. God is very much pro-encouragement. Encouragement comes from God. Discouragement comes from the wicked one. I heard a story of, of a fable years ago where the devil was having an auction. And at this auction, he was auctioning off some of his, his most powerful tools. Things like lying and deceit and cheating. But behind the counter, there was this tool called discouragement. And somebody wanted to buy that one. He said, that one's not for sale. That's my most effective tool. And oh, how the devil will use discouragement. God help us not to be discouraging people. Everybody needs encouragement. Because everybody's having it rough. You'd be surprised. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. These are very simple instructions. Notice here it says comfort the feeble-minded. We see that word feeble-minded, we think of somebody who's dense and duh, mentally challenged. But it's talking about faint-hearted. In the Greek it's saying comfort the faint-hearted. Everybody's having it rough. So let's try and be nice to everybody. You know, statistics show that 70% of society is suffering from some form of loneliness. 70%. Oh, they might wear a good face on the outside. But 70% are suffering from some form of loneliness. There's not a Sunday that goes by where my family doesn't drive to church. And at this point, it's down to my wife and and the girls. and, And I'll say, girls, be an encouragement to somebody today. Be a blessing. We don't walk through these doors. Okay, I'm here. Bless me. We ought to walk through these doors to try and be a blessing to somebody, to try and be an encouragement to somebody. And by the way, you know what will happen in the process? We'll be blessed. We'll be encouraged. We'll feel good. Let's determine we are going to be encouragers. What does that take? You say, well, you know, I'm just not that way. We act like it's some chromosome we're born with, you know. I didn't get the encouragement chromosomes. It's just not my... No, anybody can determine they're going to be an encouragement if we just lose ourselves. Just forget about self, okay? Just die to self. Just determine you're going to take an interest in other people, like Barnabas, like these folks. Bible says in Romans 15:1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. If you've been saved any length of time, It may be time for you to die to self and take an interest in others. Bear the infirmity of others. Invest in others. Give them your time. Give them your treasure. Give them your your talent. Sometimes it can be the smallest gesture. The smallest little thing can make a difference. Even between life and death. A number of years ago, there was a Christian by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Soviet prisoner in a Siberian labor camp. It doesn't get any worse than that. Those men were literally, if they weren't worked to death, they froze to death. And when they got weak and they got discouraged and they could not work anymore, they were beaten to death. So all you had to do to die was stop working. Well, Alexander had reached the end of his rope. He he had gone on for days and weeks and he finally couldn't take any more of this. And he determined he's just going to quit working. He knew what that meant. It was a death sentence. 
He just put his, his shovel down. He, he, just, he just stood there, heads down. And his eye caught another Christian across the room who drew a cross in the sand and pointed to that with his eyes and he said it all just like, our Savior wouldn't do that. He doesn't want you to do that. And that little encouragement was all that it took for Alexander to pick his shovel back up and keep working. And shortly after, that camp was liberated. But if it hadn't been for that one Christian who cared enough to prod his buddy on, keep on going, keep on going. Maybe there's somebody today that you can be an encouragement to. You know, the Bible says, and of some have compassion, making a difference, making a difference. Have you ever heard the expression, the girl of my dreams? You know, I think the church member of my dreams would be one who is an encouraging church member. God help us to practice encouraging faith. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.